0: Okay, I do want to begin by reading scripture. So, we're going to take the first 10 verses of Genesis 1, and then we're going to take verses 26 to 28, and then we're going to have a very short section of John's Gospel. So, here we go in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so, and God called the expanse sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day, and God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so, and God called the dry ground land, and then gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then John chapter 3, verse 13. John 3, verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This also is the word of the Lord. Um, As I was alluding to just before the break, I think of all the sections of the Old Testament that most strike terror into the heart of the modern preacher, At the very thought of preaching from it, Genesis 1 to 11 is perhaps near the top of the list. I don't know if you feel that, uh, but typically I'm seeing people shaking their heads. I'm really impressed, guys. I've met lots of people who are scared, essentially. So, Uh, What they ask is, how on earth do I do it? How can I avoid treading on people's toes with regard to what might be already deeply formed convictions about the nature of the Genesis material? What shall I do if somebody asks me about that really strange passage in Genesis 6 about the sons of God intermarrying with the daughters of man? (coughs) Um, Which kind of PowerPoint slide shall I use when talking about Noah's Ark? Uh, Will it be these ones? (coughs) Or will it perhaps be this one? (coughs) uh, This is the original left behind... uh, (coughs) Um, Genesis one are not, I think, easy. Genesis one through eleven are not easy to preach. I think, perhaps above any other section of the Bible, they raise the question: What kind of truth does God mean to reveal to us in Scripture? What is it that God is addressing us about? Is it cosmology? Is it physics and chemistry and biology? Is it ancient chronology? What is it that we're supposed to find useful in the language of 2 Timothy? What is it we're supposed to find useful uh, in these texts? Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says to us that every part of Scripture is God-breathed and useful for us. But how is it useful is an interesting and important question. Is it all useful in the same way? Uh, in which respects... Are different parts of Scripture useful? And that, I think, is indeed the million-dollar question. Now, interestingly, and the way that we sometimes go on, you wouldn't think this was true, but I think it is true. Interestingly, the majority of the Christian tradition behind us is fairly clear about the right answer to the million-dollar question. And not just with respect to Genesis 1 to 11, but with respect to Scripture as a whole. If we go back to the Reformers again, and the majority of those who came immediately after the Reformers in the 17th century, they're pretty clear about this issue. Scripture, they all say, is designed to teach us certain things and not other things. And even the things that it does mean to teach us about In those cases, even there, the language that is used is accommodated to our ability to comprehend the truth of the matter. So, Martin Luther again writes that, Scripture speaks of God for the sake of the simplest people as if he were a human being. Such passages are all written in accordance with our understanding and ability and not in accordance with the essential state of the divine nature. So God reveals himself to us, but always does so in ways that we understand. It's the basic idea. Uh, God condescends to us in speech and in other ways, so that we have to then try to discern what is the essential point being communicated and revealed, and not to get distracted. John Calvin, likewise, in a rather famous passage in his commentary on Genesis, gets into this same idea. When he gets to verse 16, we find him puzzling over the question of the sun and the moon as the two great lights in the sky. And John Calvin has a slight difficulty with that because he says, Contemporary astronomers know very well that Saturn is actually much larger than the moon. It only appears otherwise. You see what I mean. So, what are we to do about Genesis 1, he asks himself in the commentary. Well, he says, we must understand Moses as speaking of the heavens as they appear to ordinary people and not as they really are. That's his solution. Now, this is an important point, so I'm actually going to read the whole passage, which is ridiculously small font. So don't be mad, I haven't changed them yet. Moses, he says, does not here subtly descant as a philosopher on the secrets of nature, as may be seen in these words. First, he assigns a place in the expanse of heaven to the planets and the stars but astronomers make a distinction of spheres and at the same time teach that the fixed stars have their proper place in the firmament. Moses makes two great luminaries, but astronomers prove by conclusive reasons that the star of Saturn, which on account of its great distance appears the least of all, is greater than the moon. Here lies the difference. Moses wrote in a popular style, things which without instruction all ordinary persons endued with common sense are able to understand. But astronomers investigate with great labor whatever the sagacity of the human mind can comprehend. You see the distinction he's making, right? Genesis 1 was not written for people with a degree in astronomy. It was written for ordinary folks, and it presents the world as they would acknowledge it to be. Scripture, says Calvin, does not set out to teach us about astronomy. Other people do that, but Scripture does not. Writing just a few years after Galileo's heresy trial in 1633, when that astronomer, you remember, was being prosecuted for spreading the wicked but true Copernican ideas about the universe, So writing just around that time, the English Puritan John Wilkins insists likewise on the importance of allowing creation to speak in its own terms alongside Scripture, recognizing that Scripture was not intended to provide the kinds of information in which science is interested. So this is a 17th century Puritan, John Wilkins. It were happy for us if we could exempt Scripture from philosophical controversies, if we could be content to let it be perfect for that end unto which it was intended, for the rule of our faith and obedience, and not stretch it also to be a judge of such natural truths as are to be found out by our own industry and experience. Scripture does not set out to teach about natural things, in accordance with the exact truth, says Wilkins. A very similar thing is said by a 17th century Dutch theologian, Christopher Wittich. Scripture often speaks according to the view of the people. So as we, in our speech, accommodate our speech to the persons we are speaking to, uh, we don't speak to a child the same way as we speak to an adult, for example, so God also does Samuel Rutherford, Scotsman. Some of you will know the name, perhaps. Samuel Rutherford was one of the participants in the Westminster Assembly that produced the Westminster Confession of Faith. Rutherford says this, "'Scripture is not our rule in things of art and science as to speak Latin, to demonstrate conclusions of astronomy.' But it is our rule in fundamentals of salvation and in all morals of both first and second table, that is, the Ten Commandments, as well as in church government and worship. That is the predominant reformed view of the 16th and 17th centuries, in fact. These sentiments reflect the predominant view, not the entire view, but certainly the majority view, and certainly the view of all of the magisterial reformers. That's, that's what they believe. Now, I think it's pretty clear that to a very great extent, culturally and in church life, we have lost touch with this reform perspective. And if we have not, then many of our parishioners definitely have. For the reformers and for the church fathers like Augustine before the reformers, Scripture is given to us fundamentally to make us wise unto salvation. I was talking to somebody about how my go-to version for quotes like that's always the King James, because it just sounds right. (coughs) Um, So there's an example of colleagues that we were speaking to over coffee. This is essentially what Scripture is for. It is perfectly designed in terms of what its purpose is. And it infallibly leads us, if we wish to be led, to the good outcomes that God has in mind in inspiring it. But the perfection of Scripture for these Reformed folks was not an abstract perfection. It was always connected to the sotiro- soteriological, the saving purpose of Scripture. This is what the Reformers believed about Scripture, and they believed that Scripture achieved these ends in the midst of its very real humanity. This goes back to the first talk. God achieves these ends in Scripture in the midst of real human words arising in real times and places which address us in consideration of human limitations and weaknesses, limitations in the biblical authors and limitations in us. That's what the Reformers believed. All too often in the modern period, unfortunately, we've forgotten to ask the question, even to ask the question, what is this part of Scripture designed to do? We kind of think we know already, and we forget to ask. Which kind of information is this part of Scripture designed to impart? We simply assumed too much in the modern period that Scripture must surely be designed to answer any question that we might have, as if it were a kind of encyclopedic um, you know, uh, body of knowledge. And we frequently claim to have found these answers in Scripture, even though it requires us to read Scripture in all sorts of ways that are very much out of joint with what likely was the original concerns of the various authors. And this is why, I'm not scared to say for many of us, since so many of you shook your head, this is why for some of us, Genesis 1 to 11 become shark-infested waters. <laughs> And paddling around them then becomes a dangerous activity. All too often, what people want from these chapters is answers to their own questions. Or worse, answers that are exactly the same as the answers they already have to their own questions. And the average preacher knows all too well that he or she does not possess the answers to all those questions. Most especially, because unless you're quite unusual, you do not have a degree in science. So if those are the questions that are going to be asked, well, that's going to be a problem. Better not to disturb the waters. Better not to paddle in those waters. (laughs) Better to go to a different text. But here's an idea. What if, instead... We simply put the question about the questions up front, right there up front on the table at the front of the church. I'm speaking metaphorically, you understand. What if we remind people of the one thing that all Christians through the ages have agreed about concerning Genesis 1 to 11, even if they have not agreed about other things? What if we reconnect people right up front with their reformed heritage, in fact. Whatever else we may sometimes think about Scripture as being useful for, we might say, we can at least agree, can we not, that it's primarily useful for making us wise unto salvation. Can we agree on that? So, what do these chapters tell us about the nature and character of God? What do they tell us about the nature of the world and of human beings? What do they tell us about the human vocation and evil and redemption? What does Genesis 1 to 11 tell us about all those really crucially important questions, the questions at the very heart of our existence, and questions that it is reasonable to suppose the authors were asking in writing this material? These are much, much more important questions than whether there was a big bang or what the composition might be of that particular lump of rock. In that respect, we live in crazy times, don't you think? Um, I mean, I can live my life for the rest of today without knowing very much about the Big Bang or about the composition of the rocks around me. I can't live very effectively for more than five minutes, though, without understanding who God is, who I am, what my vocation is, and what I should do. Those are way, way more important questions, are they not, than all the ones our culture is obsessed about with regard to these questions of creation and origins and so on and so forth. What if we try to allow Genesis 1-11 to address us about these ancient and important and still crucially important for us kinds of questions? And just for a moment, just for a few weeks, place our much more modern and much more trivial questions on the back burner. How would that be? It's like making a contract with folks. How would it be? I find myself that this questioning of the questions works quite well. It clears space for some resurgent theological reading of a book like Genesis. And sometimes I use this illustration to help people along. Here are four maps of India, I say. There's a political map, a railway map, a map of physical geography, and a road map. Which map, I ask, tells you the truth about India? And quite quickly, people get the point. Because the point is, they all tell you something of the truth about India. Which map you use depends on which kinds of questions you're asking and what you want to do with the answers. Yes? If I traveled in every mile of India's railway system using this map, would I know India? Well, I'd know it better than if I had never set out. But there would still be loads of things, including some very important things, that I would know nothing about. And some of those other things might have the capacity to change my life. So even the exhaustive use of one map wouldn't necessarily get me where I need to go on my journey. And so, when we read Genesis 1, I typically propose to people, let's focus on the set of questions that Scripture as a whole encourages us to ask. Questions about faith and life. And let's pay careful attention to the incredibly important biblical answers to these questions. And at the end of the day, if we want to go back and ask the other questions that we've temporarily set aside well and good... But at least we'll have read Genesis together, and we stand a fighting chance of making better progress. So this is how I typically proceed in class and when I'm speaking in churches. And I've preached on Genesis 1 in this way. And much to people's surprise, um, particularly given what I've just said to you, I begin with a New Testament passage. (laughs) I begin with John 3.16. Because everyone knows what that means, right? That's on every banner at football game, as far as I can see, in this fine country. Uh, you know, that's a really well-known verse, right? So here's a verse I assume we all think we exhaustively understand. Um, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. But here's an important question. When did God begin to love? The world. When did God begin to love the world? Did God the Father only begin to love the world when God the Son came among us? Were human beings only capable of believing in God when God the Spirit came in power at Pentecost? When did God begin to care about eternal life as he said to care about that in this passage? When did God begin to save the perishing? Every so often, and I've said this to you before today, I meet people who tell me they're New Testament Christians. It's one of my things. So nothing after this, okay? This is two hits and gone. But uh, This is one of my buttons, and you can really easily push this button. Um, Another button, by the way, just since we're on buttons. um, Another button is when people come up to me as a college professor at the end of term and say, "Uh, that's great, you'll be going on your holidays now. That's a button. You don't even understand why that's true, but uh, <laughs> that just depresses me. Anyway, um, the only important button at the moment is I'm a New Testament Christian. What do you mean? I ask, because I don't let it go these days. Well, I believe what the people in New Testament times believed. That's that's our scripture. That's the New Testament, really. And of course, you know what I asked them next. Didn't those same New Testament people believe the Old Testament was their fundamental scripture? Didn't they believe that Jesus himself had given them the Old Testament as their scripture? In fact, didn't Jesus explicitly identify himself with the God who had already revealed himself to Abraham and Moses and David? And of course, they look at me and their eyes glaze over and it's as if I were speaking a Martian. <laughs> Such is the reality of church life in these parts of the world nowadays. And if truth be told, it is a church in which people, we perhaps, find it quite difficult, in spite of what Jesus said, to connect the God revealed in the Old Testament with the God revealed in the New and uh, you've heard this kind of thing from more than one person, I'm sure. Well, the God of the Old Testament is a God of anger and judgment. And the God of the New Testament is a God of love and mercy. The God, the, the Old Testament is a book of law. The New Testament is all about grace and so on and so on and, and so on. And in this discourse, the particular connection between Jesus and the Father gets seriously damaged or if not entirely broken. It's as if Jesus had never said what he said. It's as if we think we can set it aside because we know better. <coughs> Somehow, it's weird. Here's scriptural people, you know, but, but on these issues we, we fall over the the first Marcionite hurdle <coughs> on the running track. And so I think for many people in our current religious culture, there's God over here and there's Jesus over here and God has always been at work in the world, but not necessarily in very good ways. And Jesus comes along and he starts doing stuff later, and that's all really cool. <clears throat> right? So it's just a very dichotomized idea. Jesus is quite different from God in character. He's quite nice. God the Father is quite angry. And then somewhere else there's the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and nobody really knows what to do with the Holy Spirit. Presbyterians sure don't. I mean, other people have, other people have ideas. Uh, he shows up late in the story at Pentecost, and nobody's really very clear what the Holy Spirit was doing before Pentecost. This is very kind of... In fact, it sometimes seems to me in some folks' theology that the Holy Spirit plays a function very close to the really enthusiastic young bench player in a basketball game. Um, <laughs> The game's going on, and it's getting closer and closer to the final buzzer, and the kid on the bench is getting more and more agitated. You know, put me in, coach, put me in. I can bring the energy you need. I can help you with the communication, this multilingual team. Uh, no, says the coach, sit down. We're going with the starters, but you'll get to play in the last five minutes. And I'm joking, but I'm kind of not. So, my question When did Almighty God, the eternal triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when did God begin to love the world? When did He begin to care about people believing Him and about eternal life and about perishing? Let me suggest to you, as I routinely do to others, that God began to do all these things in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why? You ever asked that question? Why? Why is there a cosmos at all? What is it for? Israel's neighbors in the ancient Near East had their own answers to this kind of question. What is the cosmos for? They said, it is for the gods. That was their answer. It came into being with the gods, it came into being for the benefit of the gods. For those ancient neighbors of ancient Israel, the cosmos was fundamentally where the gods lived. They lived in the heavens, in the sun and the moon and the stars. They lived on earth, in the storms and in the sea. They also lived in the underworld as well. The cities of the ancient world were built for the gods. In the modern world, we think of cities as being built for people uh, to live in, not in the ancient world. Cities in the ancient world are primordial. They're built for the gods. They're there before people are even thought of. And the temples in these cities, uh, again, our instinct is to think of temples perhaps as being places for people to worship in, not at all. The cosmos is for the gods, the cities are for the gods, the temples are for the gods. Ordinary folks don't go there. The only folks who go there are people looking after the gods in their homes, which is what a temple really is. And their presence in these temples, marked, of course, by images. Images of particular deities in particular temples. By being present in the image, the deity was bound up with the prosperity, fertility, peace, and justice of the city. And so the whole thing is about the gods. Where did ordinary men and women fit in? Ordinary men and women were created in these ancient myths to work for the gods. Like many teenagers, the minor gods became tired of their cosmic chores one day. So they thought, what shall we do? I know we'll create a slave class. That's human beings. That's what we are. In the standard ancient Near Eastern view of things, human beings are a cosmic afterthought designed to meet the needs of deity. And what that meant back then in a place in in cultures that were highly stratified, very hierarchical. You had the king at the top of the social pyramid. The king was a god himself, or at least he was a half god, but he was certainly divine. And all the way down through his nobles and buddies to the vast majority, the, the, the great majority of human beings, 99% kind of human beings are the slaves whose purpose is to keep all this going, to facilitate all of this. So if you had visited ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Iraq, you would have observed a few people caring for the king in his palace. You would have seen a few people caring for the god in his temple. The great number of people you would have observed as somehow being involved in supporting the economy of the city-state as workers, essentially. That's what you would have seen had you gone, although you wouldn't have had too much time to see it because you would have promptly been captured, enslaved, and put to work. Uh, They didn't like tourists in those days. so. So in the ancient world, the whole of the human society... Was oriented toward the gods just as the cosmos existed for the gods. You got the picture here, so that's that's how it was. Now, against that background, it is stunning then to read Genesis. It's absolutely stunning. There's no idea at all in Genesis that the cosmos is created in order to meet God's needs. No idea at all. God does not have needs. God's ongoing presence in the world does not depend on the satisfaction of his needs. Ancient Mesopotamian society was neurotic on this point. The the amount of effort they put in to making sure the the gods remained happy, therefore stayed with them, therefore blessed them, was enormous. Um, So satisfying the needs of the gods was one of the main things you had to do. No idea of that in Genesis. No idea in Genesis that the world is created for God, actually. In Genesis, the world is created for creatures, all sorts of creatures. And these creatures do not feed the gods as they did in the ancient temples. In Genesis, pointedly, God blesses his creatures with food. You see how everything's moving in the other direction. And finally, no creature in Genesis is created as a slave of the gods. And that includes human beings. In fact, human beings in Genesis 1 are the high point of creation, the most highly exalted of the creatures. They are given important tasks in creation. They are to rule, they are to subdue. That's royal language. So they've taken the place of these divine kings, all human beings have. All human beings, male and female, mind you, utterly socially radical in the ancient world. In Genesis 2, they are to look after the world as priests, so kings and priests, both the categories I've mentioned a moment ago, right? Now used of all human beings. They are no longer the caretakers of the divine image, in the temple, they are the divine image in the temple. God's cosmic temple, right? Because the world is conceived of, is, is represented in ordinary language in Genesis 1 and 2 as a temple. A cosmic temple in which the image sits, just as it would have done in the ancient world. God created human beings, we are told, in his own image, Male and female, he created them. Now, that is not only a wonderful truth. That is a wonderful truth that has changed the world, actually. As the gospel has been preached and believed, as it's been taken all around the world, as people have even somewhat believed it, things have changed politically and socially and everything else. And so a country like your own, or indeed any Western country, the shape that it has, is ultimately due to this radical theological move, if I can put it this way, this truth being articulated and lived out and embraced and eventually seeping out into culture so that lots and lots of people took it seriously, whether they were very religious or not. So what is the cosmos for? It's for creatures. In biblical theology... In Christian theology, God did not need the cosmos to exist. There was no deficiency in God that required it to exist. There was no lack of relationship that demanded that it should exist. God was not lonely in biblical Christian thinking. From all eternity in Christian belief, God has existed in perfect relationship within the divine self, in a three-in-one relationship that needs nothing outside. God is love. God does not need any lovers. But simply out of love, simply out of generosity, simply out of a deep desire to bless, out of a full and overflowing heart, so that others can be drawn into the divine life and enjoy it because it's so fantastic, simply for those reasons, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth cosmos was created out of love. It was birthed in love by a God who is fundamentally for us, as the Apostle Paul will later so famously say. Love, it turns out, lies right at the heart of the whole enterprise. God so loved the world, says John, right from the beginning, it turns out. Love is the only reason anything exists at all actually. And what kind of relationship with creation was God looking for when he created? God was looking, as scripture tells us, for a relationship which involves trust. Specifically, it's not the only relationship that God is looking for with all the creatures, of course. But in terms of human creatures, that's certainly what we are told. God is looking for a relationship with his image bearers that involves trust. A relationship that involves belief, in the words of John 3.16. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I prefer the word trust just because of the dangers that one constantly faces nowadays of people thinking that believing is simply a matter of belief, if I can put it that way. And this is perhaps one of the, the biggest things that faces us in certain evangelical contexts, is talking people out of that idea, as if belief was assent to a number of propositions, rather than a trusting of oneself to the right relationship with God that we ought to have. James, of course, you believe there is one God, good for you. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. Very sobering verse. So there's believing and there's believing. To believe rightly in biblical thinking is not only to believe things about God, although it is, of course, it's also to trust yourself to God. The one without the other, I think, is not true biblical belief. Now, when did that begin to be the case? When did God begin to care? about whether human beings believed in Him and trusted in Him. Was it only in New Testament times? No. It was right from the beginning, was it not? Right from the very start. God so loved the world from the very beginning, and from the very beginning, God has been looking for these image-bearing creatures, been looking to us for a right relationship with Him. Trusting that God is the one and only God, in fact. Trusting that God is good, in fact. Trusting that God is indeed for us and deserving of our love. All of that, I think, is bound up. It's it's reading, as it were, the character of God truly, correctly. Understanding who God is, what God's motivations are, where God is coming from, if we can use that rather loose language. It is this trust that is broken in the Garden of Eden, is it not? Genesis 3. You remember where that begins. It begins with this very subtle question Did God really say? That's the beginning of the whole business, right? Uh, people talk about the original sin, you know, and you've probably read books on this. Well, it was pride or something else. Well, actually, I think before we get to pride, we, get, we have to reckon with distrust. Did God really say? Beginning of a long tradition that's come down to our present day. Did God really say? It's perhaps the predominant question in post-Christian Western culture generally. Unfortunately, it's becoming a big question in the church as well as we face cultural pressure on every side. Did God really say? And the human pair get confused, don't they, in Genesis 3 about what it was that God actually did say and why he said it that way. That's how I read what's going on here. And they begin to think that maybe God, after all, is not all about love and generosity. Perhaps that's not who God is. Perhaps God is mean-spirited and self-centered, they say to themselves, with help from the serpent. And right there begin all of our human woes. A lack of trust. A lack of trust in the goodness of God. That's what I think the original sin is, biblically speaking. This is where it all begins. And afterwards, we find a declaration of independence. Because obviously, if God is not to be trusted, you've got to look after yourself, right? That's the kind of thinking. God is not good. I have to readjust now. I have to do my own thing. This is where it all begins. When did God begin to look for trust? When did God begin to look for believers? Right from the beginning, I think, is the right answer. And right from the beginning, Genesis says, we have been reluctant to offer this trust. We have been reluctant to believe. We prefer to trust the serpent and to hide from God. And of course, Genesis 3 is very graphic, very powerful on on that issue. When did God begin to care about eternal life? That's another big theme in John 3.16. When did God begin to save the perishing? Well, again, I don't believe it was during Jesus' earthly ministry. It was right at the beginning is the answer to the question. Genesis 2, we have the tree of life. I don't believe that tree grows there as a kind of a hurdle to trip us up, you know, a trick a trick by a trickster God to see if we'll keep an arbitrary rule. I don't think it grows there simply as a test of our faith. I think the tree of life grows there as a witness to where human creation is heading. It's a promise, that tree. It's there already saying, this is where the story is going, folks. This is where we're headed. As long as we will take God at his word, as long as we'll trust him and love him, and so love each other and all the other creatures, just let that be so, and this is going to be a really good life. And in addition to that, there's this eternal life at the end of the thing. That's the picture, I think, in Genesis chapter 2. There is, in this tree of life, a whole other chapter to the story, right from the beginning. When did God care begin to care about eternal life? It was in the plan. It was right there in the plan. And when did God begin to save the perishing? Well, you remember John in his Revelation writes of the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Solution to the problem of evil, devised right at the outset of the human story by the God who is for us and patient with us, because as Peter later says, he does not want anyone to perish. This is a solution for the future, the solution involving the lamb. It's a solution for the here and now as well, of course. So when did God begin to love? When did God begin to enter into the messy life of the world and try to seek to restrain evil and to turn evil to good? Right from the beginning. That's where it all began to happen. As soon as evil enters human experience, that's when God begins his redemptive work in the world a god of immense love pictured so clearly for us i think in genesis 1 to 3 and it comes out in all sorts of really quite touching ways this this redemptive loving merciful impulse uh, you remember the nakedness issue in genesis 2 and 3 the fruit of the tree has been consumed The man and the woman created to be naked and not ashamed find themselves now to be ashamed, and they cover up with fig leaves. And you may not know this, but fig leaves are utterly useless plant materials when it comes to clothing. (laughs) They are—they are utterly ridiculous. It's a joke, actually, in a way. This—it's meant to be slightly humorous. You're kidding. You know, forget all those paintings you've seen. Go find a fig leaf in the Encyclopedia Britannica. So you know, covering the human impulse to cover up, they can't even do that well. That's the point, right? They they can't even hide from God well, for gosh sakes. That's the point of the story. And what happens next? Does God sit back and laugh? He steps in and he says, "You know what? If there's going to be clothing, it's going to be proper clothing." Do you remember? And he makes sure they have proper clothing because nakedness now is a problem because of the fallenness of our psyche and everything else. And so now steps are taken to contain and restrain evil and to make sure we can go on, as it were, even in our fallen state. This is not an all or nothing God. This is a God... Who comes in and meets us where we are and does stuff, not just to save the world in the long run, but to make things a whole lot better than they otherwise would be in the meantime, actually. That's the picture of God. In the Old Testament, this is not just about the parable of the lost sheep. That's great, but that's just another example of the same kind of thing. It's not a new thing, right? So this idea of of God stepping in. Think of the story of Cain. You remember um, chapter 4, we get to Cain murdering his brother Abel. And you know as well as I do that uh, later on in Genesis, the only appropriate response to that is a life for a life. Because life is so precious, this image-bearing life is so important that you have to mark its illegitimate taking very seriously. Only a life for a life. And yet, what does God do in Genesis 4? Cain goes off into exile. And he complains about it. It's not fair. And God says, okay. So I'll put my mark on you. And I'll be your avenger of blood if somebody attacks you. This is the guy who just killed his brother, for God's sakes. He, he wasn't worried about justice when it came to his brother. Now he's very concerned. About, it's very human, right? He's very concerned about justice when it's him. Uh, and, and so God steps in and, and does stuff to make things better even for Cain in the meantime. And uh, you see that theme all the way through the entirety of the biblical story. Uh, Think of the flood story. Um, Another excellent example, I think. We get to the flood story, and what do we read about the people before the flood? We read that before the flood, every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. But the flood came and sorted that out, right? No. After the flood, every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. Now, if you've seen the Noah movie, which I'm a very small minority, I thought that movie was very profound in certain respects. Let me just tell you, right? Here's one of the profundities of it. Do you remember the Noah movie? How this dilemma plays out? Noah is aware of this problem after the flood, do you remember? He's convinced actually that this evil is now endemic, it must not be allowed to flourish, it comes from human beings and you remember he proposes killing his grandchildren, do you remember that? It's a very profound insight actually because what goes on is that Noah has to become convinced actually by the woman in the story that this is not what God is wanting. It seems logical to solve the problem, but God says, nope, we're going to live with evil, actually. We're going to live with evil. I'm a holy God. We're going to live with it, though. We're going to to constrain it. We're going to to turn it to good. We're going to to redeem it. It's going to take a heck of a long time, but we're going to go with the whole whole story. That's who God is in this story. And this is the Old Testament that people talk about the angry God in. it, It blows my mind, actually. We're not reading the same text, it seems to me. I mean, the great thing vis-a-vis the Noah movie is that God is not Noah, thank God. That's the whole point of, of the whole thing. God brought the judgment, but it's not that God enjoys judgment. It's not that God's got it in for creation or whatever. Once you get the big picture here, you understand that can't possibly be the answer, even if you're reading an individual passage that looks like it might be for a moment. It can't be the right answer. That's why reading in the big frame is so important in all of our preaching and uh, reading. And so God makes a covenant. Do you remember? The whole of creation will survive. It's all going to go on. Nothing else like this is ever going to happen again. Other stuff will happen, but not this. This is going to go on so God so loved the world and of course as we go on in the Genesis story and we'll be coming back to this uh, tomorrow morning you get exactly the same idea Uh, Abraham called out as a vehicle for God's blessing to all the nations of the world but what kind of person is Abraham well he trusts in God pretty well we're encouraged to follow his good example when he's trusting in God. Does he always trust in God, though? Remember the uh, the lying about whether Sarah's my wife incident? Twice? Um, okay, well, that's not trusting in God, right? So Abraham is a, a flawed character. Abraham's not an ideal person, but God works. God works with what he finds. He works with uh, Abraham, um, Jacob, even more striking example, you know, Jacob, whose name really reminds you of the verb to deceive in, in Hebrew. Esau, he the hairy man, un- outdone by Jacob, the smooth man, and you've got to reckon there's more to that than simply his nice skin. I mean, that's a metaphor, right? Smooth, he's a smooth talker. That's, that's what he's about. Uh, favoritism in the family. Do you remember how devastating it is? Rebecca, Jacob is her son, Esau is his son. It's very interesting how favoritism in family plays out. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Disastrous bidding war in the childbearing department ensues from that. Do you remember when Leah tries to make Jacob love her by bearing children? And Rachel gets involved. And they begin to compete for the love of their husband. And eventually it kills Rachel. Tragic story. Uh, I had a colleague once. He was asked to speak on the family of God as a theme at the Regent College retreat. And he chose Genesis. It was hilarious. <coughs> you know, the family of God. We have a picture of that. No, no, this is the family of God. These, these are the family. These are. You are as well, by the way. Don't think I don't know. I'm <laughs> Just saying. What about Jacob's children? Terrible bunch of kids. I mean, Joseph gets a free pass in musicals and stuff, but honestly, he's he's a brat, don't you think? Uh, The favorite of his father, Jacob's slow learner, right? Favorite of his father, the teller of tales on his brothers, provoking them to hatred. Ending up as a slave in Egypt, does quite well in certain respects while in Egypt, but ends up oppressing the Egyptians in much the, way, the same way the Egyptians will later oppress the Israelites. And you're thinking, really? Really? Is the purpose of God's people in the world to invent feudalism in Egypt? I doubt that. I mean, I don't think that's right. Judah, persuaded not to murder Joseph, but only because he can make a buck? Does he agree? Reuben, well, he does okay, but even though he doesn't confront his brothers about the whole thing. A horrible family, frankly. But God is at work in the family. And do you remember how Genesis ends? Joseph meets his brothers, and what does he say? You intended to harm me. He's a very blunt guy. (laughs) You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. (laughs) God turned it to good. Entirely unbelievably turned it to good. Now, to my mind, this is an absolutely wonderful, true story. This is the book of Genesis. We're not done with it. We'll come back. Um, It's a wonderful story of God's love and grace and mercy in the midst of a humongously large amount of human darkness. That's what it is, I think. It begins in Genesis 1-11. These chapters may not give us answers to the questions that we think are the important ones or we would like the answers to. They may or they may not, and I'm inclined not to get into arguments about it, to be perfectly honest with you, because I think it misses the point. The main point of Genesis 1-11 is to set up the entirety of the story, about all the big themes we've just been talking about, These texts resist us, I believe, actually, when we try to impose ourselves and our trivial questions on them. They just won't play the game. They push back, and they they, they end up making us nonsensical if we don't listen to them pushing back. But if we refuse to be distracted by relatively trivial questions, I mean, if we insist on being distracted, there's nothing to be done. But if we resist that temptation, and surely it's our task as preachers to help people to resist that temptation, right? Getting Genesis 1-11 onto the table for the answers these chapters give to the big questions, that surely is what we want to do. And we do, I think, deprive our congregations of a tremendous good if we agree not to preach to them just because they're distracted by trivial questions. That is, that's not good. I think, I would suggest. So I would say preach it. Uh, preach it because it's the word of God and we need to, we need to hear it. Amen. Amen.